I'll come on to the end. We have kind of a formal liturgy, as you may have seen, but uh, you're welcome to do what Carol just did. And you can go and get a drink over there, a bag of chips, as long as you don't crack over too much. And if that helps, we will uh, pay attention to the service. And they're kind of academic, but the sermons hopefully won't be so academic that uh, we're, we're lost. And then there's another longer handout that starts on page four. And on page four, it's um, an outline of today's service. And if you happen to be sitting beside somebody who has one that you wouldn't mind sharing with, um, just grab your hand if you have a spare copy, because I know uh, one of you fixes you one. But let me just orient us as we might be doing. We've been going to Matthew the last several months before Rector King Ganser brought us there last fall, and we are today exactly halfway through the gospel. I didn't look at it, but one commentator swears that um, Matthew 13 11, which speaks of the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, he is dead centered in Matthew's gospel, and not for the reason, because the message of Jesus is about the kingdom of God. Today, we learn that the kingdom of God is, uh, among other things, uh, a secret. So, we have a translation uh, before you, and I will refer to it by and And uh, I'll set the tone in just a minute, but I need to follow my own notes in the back. Remember, I have an introduction. Uh, you remember Apollo 13, maybe some of you have seen the movie where Tom Hanks, who uh, is a great actor, um, he says that line that some of us who are in our 60s, 50s, maybe even remember uh, that when Apollo 13 was in trouble, we heard um, over the radio, Houston, we have a problem. And indeed, Apollo 13 did have a problem, and it was a major one. But you were listening carefully this afternoon to gospel will say, it sounds like Houston, we have a problem. In our passage, Matthew, from Matthew, the disciples come forward and say, Jesus, why are you talking parables? And we expect Jesus to say, well, I'm a good teacher, and I want everybody to understand, and I like down-to-earth lessons. But instead, Jesus says, in verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens, but to them it has not been given. Whoever has it be given to them, no. but whoever does not have it, even when he has it, will be taken away from him. And then he cites the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah was commissioned to live a life where he preached to people with frozen hard hearts. And he was told that from the beginning, and so Jesus quotes. Isaiah referring to the crowds to whom he's been speaking. And he says in verse 14, for them the prophecy of Isaiah is being completely fulfilled that says. And then here Matthew cites the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which um, is a little bit softer in its theology. Um, With the hearing you will hear and not understand, and the seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of his people has become fixed. They barely hear with their ears and shut their eyes, lest it's in order not that they should see with their eyes, hear with ears, and understand with heart, 
and change course in back to the And then verse 16 ends on a much more positive Indeed, the whole tone of this passage is optimistic. Uh, Jesus is basically saying, to you disciples, I have a great news. You can see, you can receive the blessings, but give the gift. As we have been blessed, that's a problem. And in verse 16, he says, As for you, blessed are your eyes and your ears that hear. Believe me when I tell you that any prophet what you saw, uh, what you see, but saw not, and hear what you hear, and hear not. And then it finishes off with that the last few verses, and then they talk about the past. Then, between the, the insane of the second parable and the interpretations given to the disciples, Jesus again gives co language to his followers. This is for you guys and not for the crowd so much. Jesus spoke all these things in parables to the crowd. Indeed, he said nothing to them wasn't in a parable. In order that the word be filled to the prophet, that is the psalmist, saying, I will open my other things hidden since the foundation of the world. Well, friends, if you think this passage is uh, harsh, uh, turn in your notes if you have that uh, to uh, page. The last page where I have um, some different passages is on page. The passage in Mark that Matthew was probably uh, referring to puts the language even more harshly. And Mark chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And when he's alone, he goes around him, well, as a he said to him, You have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And Mark leaves out the point of that it says, and I should be. The sermon today is, and it's on top of page four in your outline. What are we to make of Jesus' purpose in the kingdom teaching from was addressing What are we to make? Suggest as is given in bold at the top of page four, the passage is not to be explained away. After all, God is sovereign, but understood in context and with a sense of balance, holding divine determination and human free will together, many aspects of which are a mystery. Friends, today we're going to be talking about a few words that theologians like to throw around. Debate has to do with free will on the one hand. Humans get to decide when they believe and who they believe and what prompts them to believe. And on the other hand, the election uh, that God chooses people to believe. So, election is kind of a soft word for God's determination, and predestination is a harsh word that God chooses who believes. And some would say God also chooses who does not believe. Sobering territory. Let me begin with a little bit of levity, if such is possible. Um, maybe you don't think it's funny. I don't know. Danielle, you ever do it? There was a, a, a person I knew in 
was not a specialist in theology per se, who went to a, a theologian's conference, and they were talking about human free will. We get to choose, and God has determined it all. You've got the, what do they call the Calvinists, the Arminians on the one hand, the free will people, and the Calvinists on the other hand, who say, um, God has basically fixed your destiny. And they broke up into discussion groups. The free will group was over here, and the uh, determination group was over here. And this guy sort of thought, well, I don't know what to think about this. So um, he thought, well, um, I'll, 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 I'll go to this, uh, to this, this one group. And, and he, went to the, uh, he went to the Calvinist group. And uh, they said, uh, what are you doing here? And he said, I chose to come. And they said, you did not. Go to the other group. Those are those people. So he went to the other group, uh, to, the, uh, to, the, um, to the other group. And uh, this uh, Armenian group, and uh, they said, what are you doing here? And he said, I was sent here. And they said, no, you weren't. Go to the other group. So he ended up not going to any group. This is all the way of saying that we have in theology kind of two people on, uh, two groups of people on, on opposite spectrums. We have people who believe that we have free choice as human beings. We can choose whether to receive the gospel or not, or at least we play a role in that. And then on the more Calvinist side, there are those who say, no. God has predestined us. He has determined us to believe. And you really have no choice in the matter. You think you do, but guess what? You don't. There are some churches that are so strict in their Calvinism that they resist saying that Jesus Christ died for your sins. They think that's a lie. Jesus Christ died for the sins of those he chose to save. And at that point, I want to get my sort of cards on the table. I think that there's theological fine-tuning there that goes at the expense of biblical language. And I want to suggest that in a mystery, both things are true. And our passage today casts light on the fact that indeed God does have a choice, that indeed some people's hearts are hardened. This goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart to the end that God would glorify himself through the deeds of, uh, of the Pharaoh. So uh, let's move then towards um, a balanced understanding of the passage. And as we go through the material today, I want to say that I'm going to go quite the potluck supper afterwards. Um, but I want to begin with a few well-known false solutions. When I first heard this passage in Mark, I was in a religious studies class at the University of Calgary as an undergraduate, and the professor drew my attention to those passages, you know, that passage in Mark. I'd never heard it before. And he suggested that the solution was to say, instead of lest they believe, you could say, perhaps they will believe. In other words, you kind of take the harshness away from it. And you want to entertain that God is really kind of hoping that they will believe and not saying that he hopes they won't believe. But uh, if you are a person who studies this passage in its context, you simply can't go that way. I mean, Matthew cites Isaiah, and Isaiah is known to be the one who was commissioned to preach a message to people whose hearts God had hardened in a sense of judgment. So another false solution is to suggest that Jesus never said this in the first place. Rather, it was an explanation that was invented by the church to explain uh, why so few Jews turned to receive Jesus. 
But uh, it's very difficult to believe that the early church would put so difficult and challenging a passage here if it were not rooted in the, in the teaching of Jesus himself. I mean, um, we, would, we would choose to soften it a whole lot more than this. So join with me as we go through a bit of a list, which I think will help understand the passage. And I'm delighted to say that there's actually material here that's edifying. This is difficult, but it's also edifying. One is the historical context. And here I'm on page four, for those of you who have, a, who have an outline. The historical context of Jesus's teachings. Uh, in the lead up to where we are in Matthew chapter 13, we have seen that Jesus in chapter 10, for example, he sent um, the disciples out to preach to the household of Israel, to tell them the good news of the message. And the message seems largely to have fallen on deaf ears. And in chapter 12, we kept on encountering Jesus facing people who really weren't very interested in the gospel at all. They turned a deaf ear, as it were. So the parables, all of the parables in chapter 13, uh, have as their historical context in Matthew's gospel, in, the verse, in terms of the teachings of Jesus, um, an explanation for why Jesus's ministry is not better received. Jesus seemed to be not very politically correct. If you want to, as I said once before in our series on, on Matthew, if, if, you, if you want to be proclaimed king, go to Ottawa. Don't go to Kenora, Ontario, and preach to blue-collar workers in Kenora. I mean, you know, it's a good thing to do, but it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the way to become famous. And I want to suggest that perhaps in this case, that we're getting uh, an insight into a technique of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was intentionally uh, trying to tone down and contain his fame. And so as with his use of the term son of man, which was intentionally ambiguous, so here it is perhaps the case that um, Jesus was uh, recognizing, you know, these people don't understand. They're not going to understand. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of keep a low profile on this, and they will be all the less inclined to crown me king. Now, there's more to it than that. Jesus actually determined that their hearts were hard. But you can see a method in what seems to be a very strange practice on Jesus. So it's kind of crowd control for the sake of Jesus's mission. After all, Jesus was the king, which everybody thought meant they would crown him and he'd become famous. But as king, he wanted to come and to be humble and to suffer and to die. And so it took a certain amount of, of management, as it were. And actually, I've already mentioned uh, the context in Matthew's church. Uh, one um, figure, David Hill, who's written a very good commentary on Matthew, uh, says at the bottom of page four, um, the distinction between disciples and Pharisees may be understood in terms of the conflict between the Syrian-Palestinian church of AD 80 to 90 and Orthodox Judaism of the time. In this kind of perspective, the parables of this chapter, following as they do on the conflict of the chapters and narrative, the narratives in chapter 12, take on a twofold significance. To the disciples, they are the means of explaining why the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus has not arrived in glory. But for the others, it's to explain why they don't believe. And in this case, he's referring mainly to, um, to, the, um, to, the, to the Jewish uh, leaders of the time. I broke from quoting to just kind of paraphrasing, and that probably wasn't the smoothest transition. I was trying to hurry along a little bit. 
So there's a context in terms of um, what was going on already in Matthew's gospel. Matthew will talk about their synagogues, which means the synagogues of Jews who've already said no to Jesus. And of course, Christianity began as a Jewish movement. Let me go on to the idea of salvation history, because I think that is uh, at least as helpful. We've seen time and again where Jesus is a, a comprehensive fulfiller of Old Testament. He is the new Jeremiah. He is the new Moses. He is Yahweh incarnate. And here, too, it seems as though Jesus is aware of Isaiah's ministry, and in a way, he's kind of comparing himself to Isaiah. Isaiah was commissioned to preach to people whose hearts were hard. And so when Jesus answers his disciples, he says, you know what? I got the same bunch here. Their hearts have been hardened. And this is not because God has sort of predetermined it, I believe, but, so that, but as a result of the fact uh, that, that people were obstinate. And so we have kind of a cooperation between people's obstinacy and God saying, okay, have it the way you like it. Um, your hearts are hard, and I'm not going to tell you anymore. So we need to understand this passage in the context of salvation history. Jesus is saying, in a sense, this is case number two of Isaiah's hardened audience. Now think about Isaiah. Isaiah, right up until chapter 40 or so, preached to a group of people who weren't going to listen at all, and God knew it from the beginning. And so Isaiah knew that his ministry was doomed to failure. But in chapter 40, the time of hardness is over. And God says, comfort, comfort my people. A time has changed when there are going to be people who will respond to the gospel. And the hard time has over, and there are going to be people with soft hearts. And so Jesus is on the verge of another transition phase here. Um, the Gentiles will later receive the gospel, as we see in, in Acts. But for now, Jesus is, te is teaching the same tough nuts, as it were, uh, that Isaiah faced. Now, the biblical context. It's interesting to note that both in uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke, this difficult passage comes, as we saw a few weeks ago, between Jesus telling the riddle of the parables. You know, I got a story for you, folks. People are kind of scratching their heads. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, let me tell you what this means. And in between the riddle, which is obscure to the crowds, and his explanation to the disciples, I'm going to tell you what it means, Jesus gives an explanation here. It falls partway through the parable of the sower that we looked at two weeks ago, and partway through the parable of the wheat and the tares that we looked at last week. The first passage comes in the middle of the parable of the sower, and the second in the middle of the parable of the wheat and tares. What's the point of this? The point of this is to say that the parables do indeed serve two purposes. They're not all hardness of heart and gloom and doom. Jesus is not merely concealing things from some people, but at the same time, as he says in this passage, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens. I've got good news for you. I'm going to tell you what this is about. Oh, by the way, I have a secret for you. Wait a minute. If I tell you the secret, it won't be a secret anymore, will it? So actually in Psalm 82... Jesus, uh, there's, um, there's a prophecy, a Davidic prophecy of someone who is going to reveal hidden things to people. And so you can't have a secret without some people knowing and other people not. And that's part of what's going on in the background. Jesus says to you, and he says it also to us, as I shall point out soon, 
It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens, but to them it has not been given. Uh, lest, uh, they, um, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with heart and change course, and I should heal them. No getting around how difficult that is. So the parables are not solely to conceal, but also to reveal. The next point in your outline on page four, and there are notes that, that will sort of provide more background. I'm, I'm doing this extemporaneously as I often do, as I always have at Christ the King so far. The emphasis is on gift, privilege, blessing, rather than probation. Jesus is telling this to people for whom this is good news. And he's happy to share that good news. He says, you people are the most privileged of anyone who's ever lived. I mean, other people in the Old Testament long to see what you guys see. So blessed are the eyes that see and your ears that hear. Believe me, he says in verse 17, when I tell you that many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but saw not. And to hear what you hear and heard not. Jesus is saying, you're a pretty fortunate bunch. But the logician in us is saying, hmm, what about the other people? I have a problem here with the other people. And um, that's perfectly understandable and a good question to ask. But my point is that Jesus is not rubbing anyone's nose in this. In fact, he's speaking to those who are the beneficiaries of his grace. The third point under the biblical context, the third dash under B, is look at the interpretation of the parables that's offered. Two weeks ago in the parable of the sower, and last week in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in that interpretation, Jesus strongly implies that people choose. Some people sort of say, well, this is good news, but gosh, you know, I'd rather spend time burning the midnight oil and paying off the mortgage, or I'd, I'd, I'd rather cut church and work a little harder so I can get that uh, Italian sports car. Or there are other people who receive it with such enthusiasm that uh, they, they burn out. Let me say this again, because there's a catch here. The penny will drop in a second. Jesus in the parable is concerned about people who will receive the message too quickly and therefore will not develop roots and will get scorched. They will burn out as it were. So many people have suggested as a way of also understanding this passage that Jesus is exercising pastoral care here. He's not letting them binge eat on his word. Jesus is dishing out his message incrementally so that they understand over time the message of the kingdom. Because he's already said in the parable, if they receive it right away and they get too gung-ho, they're just going to burn out. So there may be a measure of grace, even in these harsh words, where Jesus is deciding that he is going to let this percolate among the crowd. And he does say to them, after all, you have ears, make sure you listen. So there's what seems to be a genuine offer in the midst of all of this determination. Finally, don't miss the fact that this passage a few minutes ago was read to you and to me. In other words, whatever problem we have about the crowds in Jesus's day, which is real, we dare not take it and transfer it to us because the interpretation of the parable has been codified in scripture and is available for anyone to read. In other words, the good news of the message of the secrets of the kingdom is yours to understand. So we're part of that blessed community.
and we're being given um, a greater offer than was available to the crowds at the time because we actually are free to look at the disciples' interpretation that Jesus gave to the elect, as it were. Okay, well, there are some notes in the back that deal with things like um, 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 predestination, and there are passages that, that, uh, that, that um, emphasize God's predestination on the one hand and free will on the other. But let me switch gears if I can and suggest some more down-to-earth um, anecdotal insights. Christ the King on Wednesday afternoons, staff have evening prayer. And for the past two years or three years, however long, we do it on Zoom. And for the past uh, many months, uh, Deacon Marion has led the staff in Zoom meetings. She has control over when you speak, whether you speak, and she can do the mute you, and she can do the mute all thing. She can decide who gets to be co-host and who isn't, right? But none of us is tempted as a result to think, oh, there is some predeterministic individual who's trying to lord it over our lives and to keep us from praying. And in fact, even when she mutes us, because when we say the creed together and we aren't all muted, it just sounds like mumble jumble. So she can even mute us, but we still say the creed. And um, so I want to suggest that there's a bit of an analogy here and that God, of course, deserves the benefit of the doubt. I mean, if we can trust a human being to run a Zoom meeting without being a tyrant, and I suppose tyrants are possible, um, then God can exercise the kind of control that he does over who listens at what time and who doesn't. And we can trust him with that. It takes faith, but faith is the name of the game, folks. It's not all about smarts. No one smarted their way into the kingdom. There's lots of smart reasons to believe, but in the end, it's a matter of faith. The other thing I thought would be helpful is to look at things in terms of a spectrum. And this is outlined in your, in your notes. Um, if you have them, it's on page five. We have kind of a spectrum at one hand of human initiative and at the other hand of divine determination. At one end, we get to choose. It's all up to us. At the other end, you don't get any choice at all. It's all up to God. Now, if you put yourself in the middle, you'll find yourself comfortable. But the closer you get to divine determination on the one hand, the more grateful you are for God and his grace, right? It has nothing to do with me. We baptize babies, you know? Uh, God's grace prevails. We, we trust that God will impart faith into children. So it's all about God's grace. That sounds wonderful. It sounds wonderful. It sounds wonderful until you get to a point you realize, well, wait a minute, if it's all God's grace, there kicks in this kind of a hesitation and you run into the problem of, well, is God, is God um, beneficent? Is, is God a good guy? Or is God the one who's just kind of saying, I choose you and I don't choose you? So um, there's this matter of, of kind of a, of a spectrum. And so as I've underlined on page five, if you go far enough to the right, it, it, is, it is as though we had no choice and that God is not just gracious, that's the good news, but that he stacked the deck or rigged things. So long as the rigging reflects grace, well and good. But where we run into trouble is, notice, is in noticing that choosing some implies not choosing others. This is where the real, I think, rub comes. And that is that um, strict Calvinists, uh, people who call themselves double predestinarians, they, they say half of what makes me uncomfortable. The comfortable part is they say, you know, um, 
Hamad Nafisa, God has chosen you and he has elected you to be saved. Sounds wonderful, right? But then the other side is, is to say, you know, Joe Schmo, God has not chosen you. And no matter what you will or what you do, you are damned, buddy. And so that's called reprobation or double predestinarian. And at that point, um, I mean, I, I don't think you should ever go there. I think it's part of the mystery of God. If you, if you think logically like Calvin, you kind of have to go there. But the Bible is um, in some ways less logical in its language than, than Calvin. I mean, the Bible wasn't written by a lawyer, which Calvin was. Um, so I think that, that it's helpful not kind of not to go to the side where you say God chose you to be damned. Um, and, and I'm preaching this passage. And remember, the passage is, is proclaimed to those who are hearers of the good news. It's proclaimed as gift to the privileged. So I get to say, well, Matthew's not preaching to the damned. I'm not preaching to the damned either. And uh, so we can, we, we, can, we can be content to a certain degree. But let me want to, I just want to share two sidelines to this. And that is, is that I remember when I was a, a graduate student, I was wanting to kind of figure out whether, whether the Bible is true, whether Christianity is true. And I went to university for a whole lot of years. I learned a bunch of biblical languages and I was going to figure it out. And at some point I thought, do you know, this isn't fair. I got money to go to school. Um, I have the brains to get okay grades. If God were really fair, he would create a level playing field where everybody got into the kingdom on the basis of the same thing, something like childlike faith. And then you think, whoa, that's what he did, right? I mean, Einstein can get into the kingdom, um, and, 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 and a child who's mentally, whose mental capacities are, are next to nil knows what it's like to reach out and trust someone else for provision. So I think in the fact that God has made faith the determining factor. There is a commitment on the part of God for things to be level. There's a level playing field, as it were. And then the other part of it is I simply, I think I, 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 I said it already, and that is that we don't need to go to the divine um, reprobation end. We're simply okay saying, thank God I've been saved. So that is the, uh, the, the second of the helpful anecdotal insights. Third, any possibility we overestimate our own importance and underestimate God's? How dare God not give me a choice? I mean, I, I, we, we are for free speech in this country, and, uh, and we, we get to determine our own will, and God, you better let me have my say. Well, I think God probably does give us a role of kind, but you see, it's a little bit like mos a mosquito uh, protesting to the queen or something. You know, the mosquito thinks that the mosquito is pretty important. But in the big picture of things, we're really not that significant. And besides, none of us has complete free will. Um, tomorrow, you serve liver. And you say, I choose not to eat liver. Okay, it's your choice. But something made you choose not to eat liver. It may be your taste buds, or it may be your genes. So to a certain extent, things have been determined for us, even if we are trumpeters of free will. So there's, there's, there's got to be a place in the middle somehow in any case. And I just think that the Bible is great at reminding us that it's about God, people, not about us. That's why you're here on a Sunday. It's about God. It's about what's been called that royal waste of time, worshiping God. It's not a waste of time at all. 
Uh, from your own perspective, it is. But what could be a greater honor than to worship the living God? Okay, um, let me um, offer the um, airplane analogy. And it's in, it's in your notes at the top of page six, but somebody threw it out there and I was still thinking about it, but they said it's a little bit like um, predestination and free will is that um, say God has determined that this plane is gonna fly from Toronto to Los Angeles. God hires a pilot to fly the plane from Toronto to Los Angeles. Um, if it's an Air Canada flight, Air Canada advertise and say, we got a great flight coming up, Toronto to Los Angeles. Good, good, good deal. Come sign up. Uh, you might sign up or you might not. Um, the advertising part corresponds to what I'm doing right, what we're doing right now, right? The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. Some people are going to think, good deal, I'm in. Other people are going to think, eh, not, not so sure. We get to choose to that extent. But our acceptance of the gospel is equivalent to our purchasing a ticket and uh, waiting at the gate area to get on the plane. And then when you're on the plane, or you want a Diet Coke? Sure, fine. Um, do, you want a, do you want ginger ale instead? Sure. Do you want the pretzels or do you want the croutons? You know, it, it, it's, kind of, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of up to you. So I think that there's sort of a balance here that, that, um, that, that, can be, that can be helpful. Let me close um, with um, two analogies. In, in reading uh, the past few weeks about this passage, I was amused to find that there was a, um, a, a man who gave his testimony, and some of you could do this if you had the opportunity to, many of you could come up and you say, you know what? Actually, we had, a, we had a guy from Eastern Europe here in the fall who had this story. He said, I was an atheist. I had no time for God. I didn't believe in God. And I started praying with these people and they wanted me to pray. And I thought it was a big joke until it came my turn. And as soon as I came my turn, I had a vision of this triune God who spoke to me. And from that moment on, I was transformed. In other words, here's a story of a person who's experienced the kind of divine grace that we're talking about. Well, in another situation like that, where somebody talked about God's grace and God did this and God did that, a theologian who was on the Armenian side came up to them afterwards and said, you know, your testimony was pretty good, but, but you, you forgot to tell us your role in this. And he said, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I forgot to tell my role in it. So he said, hey, everybody, here's what I did. I ran as far away from God as I possibly could. That's what I did. So in other words, our role is often rather inconsequential. Way back in seminary years ago, I remember the seminary professor closing, and I found in a book where he found it, and I'll close with this. There's a door in front of you. And it's an invitation to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of your life. And on the door, it says, choose as you will. Whoever wills may come. You decide to walk through the door, which I hope you will, because following Jesus is this revolutionary experience of divine forgiveness and of grace and acceptance into heaven. So the guy went through the door, and as he got on the heaven side of the door, Somebody said, turn around. He turned around, looked on the back of the door, and it said, chosen from before the foundation of the world. In other words, there's a way in which I think both things are true, and we have to hold that tension um, as a reality, because I think that's the witness of the broader testimony of Scripture. 
I said I was going to conclude, and I will. Look at the bottom of page 11. I wanted to draw attention to one verse in Matthew. Matthew 11, 27 and 28. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, and this is in that, that little Johannine speech of Jesus at the end of 11. It's, Jesus sounds like, it sounds like the Jesus of John, not Matthew. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the Son knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is as predestinarian as it gets. And then somebody, read me the last verse, and the point will be made, and I promise to sit down. Simeon, a nice British accent. You're not shy. Go ahead. You're reading the last verse, 28. right? Open invitation. So the two are juxtaposed in Matthew. Friends, Jesus is wonderful. We are the beneficiaries of his grace. But God is sovereign, and he determines in a real sense who's in and who's out. Cooperate with the Spirit, and let him who has ears choose to listen. Amen.